I um, have long resisted the idea of teaching out of Revelation because it's, it's a very difficult book to teach out of, I think. People have a lot of preconceived ideas about it and a lot of, uh, there's a lot of fear and mystery around it. Um, just, it has all this wild, uh, sort of vivid imagery. Um, it seems very coded. It seems very, um, uh, very mysterious, very not connected to us in a lot of ways. Um, and also there's a lot of bad teaching about it. The reason that I called this study uh, Reading Revelation or Reading the Revelation Responsibly uh, is that there's a book uh, with that title by Michael Gorman that I read uh, last year. Um, and it uh, really makes the argument that we should shy away uh, from typical ways of teaching and reading this book, which are largely uh, in the modern era, especially in the kind of church culture that we're in, about like finding out a secret code uh, or trying to connect the events that are described in this book to like things that are happening now. Um, and oh, are we at the uh, are we at the end of history? Is are these the last days? You know, that's always the kind of question that revolves around uh, uh, the, our reading of this book. Um, and Gorman uh, argues, and I'm going to argue over the course, or I'm going to try to teach uh, over the course of this uh, this study, the idea that we really ought to approach this with one, its cultural context in mind, which is something I pound the table about every every time I teach. Um, but also thinking not so much about how it is a, uh, a coded message that we can figure out the future from, because it's not, um, to, uh, to draw close what it, how it speaks to us. And how, when I taught Hebrew, uh, and how we can think about it in a way that gives us hope um, and helps us to, uh, to draw closer to Christ. Uh, when I taught Hebrews, um, I told you that the, the theme of Hebrew, I always try to give like a, a two or three maybe a, a, a limit of um, like a sentence long uh, sort of statement about the book that if somebody asks you what is that book about, you as a, uh, as a God-fearing, conscientious Christian can say, this is what it's about, this, this single sentence. Uh, for Hebrews, I said it was don't look back, right? The idea of not looking back at that, your former life as a a Hebrew. For Leviticus, it was, be holy, as I am holy. And for the Revelation, it is, the lamb beats the dragon every time. Um, because that is the theme. Uh, we're going to, uh, uh, putting it in another way, Christ, uh, Christ has subdued the systems of the world. And that's a longer one, but uh, it's just as true. Uh, and notice what I, I didn't say. I didn't say, Christ will subdue the systems of the world, or the lamb will beat the dragon. I didn't say uh, that's going to happen at some time in the future and we can figure it out. No. Christ's arrival inaugurated the kingdom. It created the kingdom of God. Um, the, the, the dragon is already subdued. Christ has already overcome the systems of the world, and we share in that victory, even though sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Uh, so we're going to explore that. And that this book is, um, it, it's kind of ironic because it has this, this reputation uh, amongst unbelievers, amongst people in the church, uh, as being kind of a frightening book. Um, and it is immensely hopeful, right? It tells you, no, he's already won. The lamb has already defeated the dragon. And that's the end of the story. 
um, or maybe just the beginning. So the author of the book uh, is, by general acclamation, everybody uh, in church history seems to believe that it's the Apostle John. Um, John, uh, as you may or may not know, was probably the youngest of the apostles. Um, you get the sense when you're reading, uh, when you're reading the Gospels that John uh, is... Um, the other apostles are about the same age as Jesus, or maybe a little bit younger, so around 32, 33 at the time of Christ's death. Um, you get the sense that John and his brother James are much younger. Um, and the reason you get that sense is uh, like maybe 12 or 13. The reason you get that sense is because they do things like ask their mom to talk to Jesus for them. Um, it, it you, you know, a... a I guess an 18 or 19-year-old might ask their mom to talk to somebody for them, but I don't think a you know 30-year-old man would do it probably. Um, and you also find um, find John like falling asleep on the Lord's lap at the Last Supper, um, which would be super weird if he was about the same age as Jesus, but is is not so unusual for a, a young kid. Um, so you get the sense that he's the youngest. Uh, of all of the apostles, uh, he is the only one who we do not know how he passed away. Um, we know, assuming he's the John who wrote the Revelation, uh, that he was exiled to Patmos and probably died there. But the, the other apostles we know definitively from history were martyred um, in various ways. Um, but we don't know how he died. Um, and in fact, uh, oh, and... So we can draw logically um, just from the history of the church and from uh, the, the way the books refer to things that all of the books that John is, is supposed to have written, whether it's the Gospel of John, the letters of John, John 1, 2, and 3, uh, or the Revelation were written sometime in, the, the, in AD 90 uh, or so. So they're the latest uh, of the, the, pretty much the latest of the books that we have so he was writing towards the end of his life. Um, when he's on Potmos, uh, which is where he wrote this, uh, this book, uh, he was probably in his late 80s or early 90s, which uh, is a very old person now, um, but was a very, very old person then. Um, so we'll talk about that a bit um, as we go through like what that means. He was heavily associated with the churches in Asia Minor, uh, which is important. Uh, when we start reading through it, you'll see that there are many, uh, many portions of the book that are addressed to churches in uh, Asia Minor, what, what we now call Turkey, uh, and that are um, formulated around like, solving the problems of those churches, especially at the beginning of the book. And then finally, uh, the genre of the book. Uh, and by genre, I mean what, what type of thing is it, right? Like Psalms is a book of poems. Uh, First and Second Chronicles are books of history. Um, the Gospels are a, a special genre called a gospel, uh, right? Good news. Uh, they're the announcement of a king. Uh, so you have all these genres within the Bible, and it's important uh, as I've... Uh, those of you who've heard me speak before know that I always say this, but um, it's important that you understand what kind of thing you're reading, right? Because if you, if you look at a headline, for instance, and it says, uh, Reds invade Pittsburgh, or, I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> Bears, small tigers, I don't know, uh, right? It makes a difference whether it's on the sports page uh, or whether it's on the national news page, right? Because one's like, whoa, what's happening? 
and, uh, and the other is, oh, this is, these are sports teams, right? Yeah, it helps you to understand the context, helps you to understand what's being said. Um, four quick rules as we go through here, um, and I should have announced these or talked about these up front, but um, let's all start with the assumption that, one, the, the Bible arises from geography. So we're going to talk a little bit about geography and where things are. Second, it's a product of history and culture, right? It was written to specific people at a specific time in a specific place who were real and who did specific things. Um, and so it was, it was relevant to them. Uh, it's incredibly hard uh, in the ancient world to um, keep things that were written, to preserve them. It's very hard. The fact that this reaches us means a chain of people uh, immeasurably long between John of, John of Patmos and us thought it was important to keep it. Um, and if they thought it was like crazy talk and not germane to them, that they would have just thrown it away or not preserved it. It, it was expensive and tiresome and uh, it took effort to preserve things in the past. Uh, Third assumption, the Bible makes claims about itself that we believe. It says it is the, the word of God. Uh, and so we're going to take it from that perspective. And then finally, uh, the fourth assumption I want you uh, to make is that the Bible is a complete, uh, a work complete unto itself as it comes to us. And that means uh, it's a book with a beginning, a middle, and an end. We find the opening in Genesis, right? And it tells a complete story uh, about God's love for mankind and his attempt to save us. Uh, and redeem us from the error that occurred in that book. Uh, and so when we read Genesis, we're reading the very last chapter. Um, it'd be unusual, I think, to pick up a novel or any other kind of book and turn to the end and read just the last chapter. But that's kind of what we're doing here. But we're doing it with, uh, I will make an effort to go back and pull out things from, from the, the, the previous 65 books uh, to make sure that we understand the context that this, this book is written in. Um, Bill Creasy, who's a, a teacher uh, at UCLA, he teaches the Bible as literature. Um, he says, kind of tongue-in-cheek, I think, that Revelation is actually the, it seems hard at first, but it's actually the easiest book in the Bible to understand, uh, it, provided that you have uh, completely read uh, and totally understood the previous 65 books because there's nothing new in it. Uh, it just is, it's, it refers to things that happened before it. Some of you are probably wondering uh, why uh, I uh, chose to call this study uh, reading the Revelation er, responsibly. And if you look at part two of your handout there, um, I, I guess I want to talk a little bit about the ways that we mishandle it uh, or use it irresponsibly, because that's going to set the stage for the way that we're going to approach it. Uh, as we go through the weeks here. Um, first of all, uh, everybody in history at all times thinks that they are living at the end of history forever. Um, and it's been that way probably since the beginning of time. Uh, but it's definitely been that way uh, since, Christ was, since uh, Christ was raised from the dead. Um, why do I know that? Well, if you go look at the, at, at the, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, if you read the letters of Peter, Peter and Paul were both convinced that the Lord would return in their lifetimes. 
Um, if you read Second Peter, he's very clear. Like I, I thought it was going to happen while I was still here, but I guess not. I'm, I'm in prison, um, and I'm probably going to die. So th- they thought they were living at the end of history. Um, and every subsequent generation since then to now has the idea, oh, we, we must be li- It's, it's got to be soon. It's got to be soon. It can't get any worse. Well, I've got news for you. It can. Uh, and it's, it's probably going <laughs> to... Sorry. Uh, I know that's not very hopeful, uh, at, at least on the surface. Um, fundamental to get out of this idea that this is uh, all... A- in evangelical code for what's in, in, in a lot of uh, kind of fundamental circles that th- this is uh, all a, it's a code for what's happening now. Uh, and we can figure it out. Uh, we can't figure it out. We're not going to. Um, so you should stop trying and start thinking about what is this book about? How does it speak to me? Um, I'm, al- I'm always, uh, whenever I think about that kind of teaching, and I, I've Heard it all over. I've heard uh, those of you who've been uh, Christians long enough will remember uh, Hal Lindsey's uh, late great planet Earth uh, or 88 reasons the Lord will return in 1988 uh, when most of you probably weren't born um, or you know any number of other books, uh, the Left Behind series, right? Everything's a it's all about what's happening now. We can just take the symbols and match them up with something that's going on now, and we'll figure it out. Uh, I remember very confidently, uh, or somebody very confidently proclaiming from the pulpit of this very church in the late 90s uh, that uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist. Um, was, was Mikhail Gorbachev the Antichrist? He was not. Um, I'm fairly certain he wasn't. Um, so it, that's the kind of thing that gets... It, it bothers me uh, in part because it assumes a, a knowledge on the part of the speaker. Like There are tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people who are way more interested in this book than you are um, and maybe way smarter than you are uh, they didn't have anything else to read, right? The church fathers didn't have anything. Um, and they didn't figure it out. You're not going to figure it out either. Um, and actually, I, I always think of this verse in 1 Corinthians 2. And I'm sorry, I don't think we're displaying the verses anymore. Uh, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, uh, he's talking about um, how, he, how he teaches and preaches. Um, and in verse 6, he says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What's he saying? He's saying, all of this teaching I'm giving you where, you know, passages from Isaiah, in retrospect, when we look at at the Old Testament, we're like, oh, how could they have missed that Jesus of Nazareth was going to be born in Bethlehem under a star and that he would be the Christ? Why why didn't they understand all that? Well, it's hidden from them. It's a mystery, right? 
If they'd known, they wouldn't have crucified him because that, right? That's what caused remission of sins. That's what completed God's, uh, God's plan. Um, so by that same token, neither you nor I nor the, prince, nor the world rulers are going to figure out when, when Christ is arriving again. The, I do want to briefly say, too, that um, so I want to focus, as I said, not on like this coded language or figuring out what's going on, like how this matches up with current events. Um, Christ is returning. Right? Christ said that. He said, I, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm leaving the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit will be here as a comforter, but I'm coming back. If Christ said it, it's true. So don't, don't ever think in, in all that I'm saying here that I'm saying Christ is not returning. I am. Or I'm not saying that. Okay, so future focus. Um, we cannot... Uh, we cannot... Uh, and this is basically the same point, but I, I, I guess I want to uh, shy away from a, a way of reading this book that says that it is entirely about the future because it's not. Uh, it was presented to the people of, to, to these churches in Asia Minor for them to deal with real problems that they were dealing with and to give them real hope in real situations that were afflicting real people. Um, so we, we don't want to think that the events that are described here are all in the future. Some of them are, but some of them have come true between the time the book was written and the time, the time we receive it. Present focus, um, it's not, I'm sorry, David, David Steger wrote some notes on here that are distracting me, um, and they're, it's, um, it's really bothering me here, I'm going to go like this, because it's <sighs> such a buzz, uh. all right, um, so not, not uh, the, this second, or the third point here is present focus, um, and this is that idea I just gave you, which is that, that we can't think of ourselves as the end of history. We also can't think of um, if you, and this is, goes into past focus, but if you uh, read some scholars, if you read some preacher and listen to some preachers or are in some traditions, the idea is, well, everything that's described in Revelation is actually a code for things that happened in the past. And, and none of it is to come. None of it is in the future. All of it happened a long time ago. And, and we're currently, like if you talk to an amillennialist, they would say we are currently in the reign. The church age is the millennium. Everything happened in the past, and, we're, and this, is, this is it. Um, and then finally, uh, breaking the code. I think I've, I've conflated that with some other things here, but like, there's no Bible code. If you hear somebody say there's a Bible code, uh, stop listening to them immediately and go do something else. You're wasting your time. Uh, there isn't, it's not coded language. Uh, and in fact, there are many places in here where the, the prophet will tell us what, what he's seeing means. Hey folks, can, can we get these folks some chairs, Chris? Or? Okay. Hello folks, be welcome. Yeah. Okay, so let's, let's start reading Revelation. And let's go to Revelation 1. And we're going to take this pretty slow tonight. Um, we probably will not get through chapter 1, but um, I'm going to do my best. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servant his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. So, just a couple prefatory, or a couple prefatory things here. One, notice this is from John, um, and it's, he calls it a prophecy. Right? Now, when we think of the word prophecy, our idea of prophecy is kind of colored by revelation itself. Right? Um, like we think it's about the future. It's about foretelling the future. It is not. Uh, the prophets in the Old Testament and here, right, John self-identifying as a prophet, are watchmen. Uh, and it is prophecy in the, in, both in the Old and New Testaments is as much about foretelling, right? About telling, they, the prophet stands between God and the people and speaks to the people on behalf of God. And sometimes he says, X, Y, or Z thing is going to happen in the future. But more often, way more often, he says, here's what you're doing wrong. Here's how you're making God angry. Go read uh, Amos or Hosea or any number of other uh, uh, books in the Old Testament, and you'll find that what they're talking about most often is not the future, but the present. Um, and delivering a message of both doom and redemption. So we can expect that here as well. Um, the other thing, and I, I'm sorry, I, I mentioned genre a moment ago, and then I didn't say what genre this is. Um, so the um, revelation is actually written in a style um, and uh, is part of a genre that we, we no longer have, but it's called apocalyptic. Um, and uh, just, uh, we'll page back in a moment, but apocaly- the the... The basic descriptor or basic components of an apocalyptic book are that they involve a narrator who meets a supernatural being and and then is led through a journey. Um, And during that journey, uh, things are revealed to him or uncovered to him in the course of of that book. So, or in the course of his, his interaction with this supernatural being. Uh, and we have a lot of these. Uh, it's not just the revelation that we have of the, this, you know, this particular book of the Bible. There's the, there's the apocalypse of Abraham, or uh, you know, there are a whole bunch of books that are, are centered uh, that we have from ancient times that are centered around this idea of a, a, a supernatural journey with um, with a supernatural person uh, or a, an entity that then reveals truth uh, to the narrator. And in fact, apocalypse, which is the, the Greek word for revelation, it means, does anybody know what it means? It means to uncover something, right? Uh, huh? Yeah, it, be, it means to reveal something, right? That's Reveal and revelation are the same word, uh, virtually. So the idea is that something is going to be disclosed as a result of reading this. You're going to understand some deeper mystery or, or it's going to reveal something to you about the nature uh, about the nature of life or the nature of the world. Uh, we actually have examples of this exact same genre in the Bible. Ezekiel is one of them. 
Uh, but we're going to turn real quick to Daniel. Um, and Daniel's full of them. Uh, it actually, um, Daniel, in addition to, uh, is probably the most famous prophetic book in the Bible as far as this kind of thing goes, uh, beyond Revelation. So if we turn, like for instance, to Daniel 10. Uh, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all, till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the fourth and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hidekel, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Uphaz, whose body also was like the barrel, barrel's a gemstone, and his face as the appearance of lightning, and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and his feet like in color to polished brass, and the voice of the words like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw not the vision, but a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me. For my comeliness uh, was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Right, so, and then it goes on from there, and this, this figure, um, who we'll meet again, uh, gives to Daniel this, this message about like, what's really going on in the world. And in this particular case, it's about what, what's going on between the nations. Um, right? And it, it reveals like there's this supernatural reality behind the, the conflicts of, uh, of these particular nations that Daniel's involved in. Um, so that we've got, that's the genre we're in. Uh, and this would have been very, very familiar to anybody who's reading this at the time. We don't have anything like this now. Like it's not. If I sat down and I started writing this, you might think, "Well, is this a novel? Is it? You know, what is it?" Um, this is a defined genre with real conventions uh, back then. So, verse four, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Well, hang on. Let's turn back to Daniel. Because we're going to see something here uh, in just a moment uh, that connects both of these passages from Daniel into one thing. Uh, so Daniel chapter 7. And we'll start with, no, yeah, let's start with verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of, of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed, and he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse from one another. And then he describes them, which I won't do. Um, and if we go to verse 7, 
No, verse 8. No, sorry. (laughs) Verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were open. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn, which is uh, part of one of the beasts, spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Um, So this comes up again in Matthew. Jesus identifies himself all the time as the Son of Man. He says it repeatedly throughout Matthew. Um, And he's brought before the high priests. And they ask him who he is. And he says, you'll see the Son of Man. They ask him if he's Messiah. And he says, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in glory. And they cry out. Why? Because he's identifying himself with the figure in Daniel 7, right? He's saying, I, I'm the cloud writer. I'm the, guy who, I, I'm the guy into whose hand is given all dominion and all power and all glory. So let's continue in Revelation. Uh, in verse 10, or no, verse 9, I'm sorry. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in, tribula- in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So he's exiled to Patmos because he taught the word of God. Uh, Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the alpha or I am alpha and omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. We'll talk about them next week. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. This is the guy from Daniel 10, right? This is the guy whose body was like a burl stone, and he was wearing, right? It's the same outfit. It's the same guy. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Remember the verse in Daniel 10 that said that, his vo- that the voice that spake to him was like many voices all together? Right? This, is the, this is a different metaphor for the same voice. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. 
When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Well, yeah. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So really quickly, and I'm, I have learned that I only have about 40 minutes before people lose attention. I've got two minutes left, so... Um, <laughs> Uh, let me say, uh, we have this description of uh, the angels of the seven churches. The word that's used here is messenger. Um, and it, it'd be really nice, and maybe it's true, I don't know. It'd be really nice if every church had an angel that watched over it that was like assigned to it. Um, and that could be true. I don't, I, I don't think it is, but it, it seems like it, it, it'd be nice. Um, I, I, but remember that angel means messenger. Um, and so I think it's addressing... The, the, the folks in the pulpit of these churches, the seven pastors or seven leaders or elders of these churches. Um, so maybe the only time in history that you could call Tony an angel. Um, in, in any event, uh, that, that's who I think this, the, the, the next chapter is addressed to as the leaders uh, of these seven churches. And we're not going to get into it today, but we'll talk about um, the concerns uh, and the um, the concerns that are raised with each of these churches. And one of the things that I want you to notice as we do it is that the theme is often compromise. And that's often, I didn't get to the themes yet, but the, the themes of Revelation, as we read through it, you're going to see are witness, right? The idea of being a witness during these last days, right? Of, of um, standing as a witness to who Christ is and what he did. Second is, uh, I've written uncivil worship here, um, and we'll talk about this a lot more next week and the weeks to come, but in the ancient world, particularly in the Roman Empire, um, like we, we think of separation of church and state, right? We're like, you, you, can't, you can't talk about politics from the pulpit, or you can't, if you're a politician, you can't be like, well, God says X, Y, and Z, so that's what we're going to do, right? We have this very, this idea that the religious world and the... Um, the world of politics are, are very different. The Romans had no such idea. No, no culture in the ancient world had any such idea. In Rome, when you went to vote, you went to vote at, at the, the Temple of Mars in Rome. That's, that's where they held it, the parade ground in front of the Temple of Mars. Uh, on, uh, you know, if you wanted something in particular, you would go burn incense and offer a sacrifice to the emperor, but not as a person, but as a god. Um, you would sacrifice to Roma, who was the personification, the goddess that represented Rome. So uh, the, the, the ancient world was rife with the idea of there are all kinds of powers you have to please. Um, and the, the point of revelation, or one of them is, don't compromise by doing that. You, you're special. You belong to God now. Third, um, I said this earlier, but the Lamb of God versus the dragon and the systems of the world um, the lamb wins. The lamb won every time. And then finally, uh, there's hope for now in this book and also hope for the future. Uh, and we'll talk a lot more about that in the weeks to come.